Don, I hit the record button. Maybe that might have been picked up. I don't know. All right, look, good morning again. Our scripture reading, it comes from our continuing uh, study of the book of Mark, the gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. As you know, this is the word of God. It's inerrant in its original writings. The Holy Spirit inspired it. And it's infallible in its application for us today, so we should pay strict attention to it. This is, in fact, the Holy Word of God. Mark 10, beginning at verse 32. And they were on the road, going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him, and spit on him, and flog him, and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, To him, teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Amen. Amen indeed. Let's bow for a brief prayer before we look into these holy things, please. Father, with your word open before us, we ask again, as we always do, for your help to speak it, to hear it, to understand it, Lord, to believe it, to obey it, to live your word. And we look to you for this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. There are really two, two distinct sections or topics, if you will, in Mark 10's verses 32 through 45. Topic one, which we're going to spend most of the time on this morning, it's covered in the first three verses of the text. Jesus, he's leading a sort of procession. It's comprised of the 12 disciples, we're told, but also some others who followed along. 
some others. We're not told anything about these other people, except that they were afraid. Pastorally, I can elaborate why fear might be a right response, but frankly, we're not told specifically why these particular folks were afraid. And so I'm not going to surmise too much on that, except to say that we know that they were in the midst of the disciples. They were in the midst of Jesus. I don't know how long, from time to time for sure. And that he had explained on at least two other occasions that we have recorded for us. He had explained that he was going to go up to Jerusalem and that he was going to suffer at the hands of the religious authorities. That's pretty fearful. I'm with this guy who's going to suffer. Maybe I'm included in that. These authorities could be quite heavy-handed, and they knew that. They could even be cruel. Jesus had recently predicted such a treatment, which included his death in both Mark 8 and Mark 9. All right, so this would be the third time he's going to do that here in the text before us. And so if you were in the proximity of Jesus and the disciples, even just for a little while, hanging out with them, this was going to be a topic that you would overhear. This message would be leaked out. And having not really fully understood it yet, rumors and fear, uncertainty and doubt, all these things surely would be conjured up by the scuttlebutt of a kangaroo religious trial. Only to then be turned over to those people who weren't even religious, right? They were the the Gentiles. They were the irreligious. They were going to be turned over for a beating for spitting, for traumatic scourging, and for crucifixion. These are the things that they had heard from Jesus. So in verse 33, again, Jesus, he pulls his inner circle of students together, the 12, and for the third time, he explains what's going to happen. And I want to briefly note three things in this morning's opening verses. Firstly, that they're going up to Jerusalem, Even if they're heading south or east or west, they're going up, it says, to Jerusalem. The Bible frequently describes these pilgrims, these Jewish pilgrims, as going up to Jerusalem for festivals and for worship. Just two examples I was able to glean from the Psalms. Psalm 122 verse 4 says, Where the tribes, the Lord's tribes, go up to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Then also in Psalms 24, verse 3, who may ascend the mountain of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? So this going up, it was obviously true in the sense that Jerusalem was on a high mountain. And so literally a pilgrim had to climb in elevation to go up. But this going up idea is also true in a philosophical sense, right? The wisdom of the Lord. And in a theological sense, the holiness of the Lord. Which was higher, of course, than any other. And so what was a routine journey for the Jew throughout his or her lifetime was now anything but routine. Going up. For the worship of God's people offered year in and year out for many centuries. Now we have God himself, Jesus, who's going up to to Jerusalem to honor his father. His father's desires 
for offering of himself. Now, in each of these three disclosures about his impending suffering and his death, again, Mark 8, 9, and 10, I'll leave it to you to figure out which verses. But in those chapters, at least, of Mark, Jesus ends with a conclusion of victory. The disciples didn't yet understand this, but right, the resurrection. But Jesus teaches that after three days, he was going to rise, rise from the dead. Now, these two things, these are certain. These are absolute certainties. The necessity of his mission and the victory of his mission. They must be accomplished. Remember, he set his face like flint. He must go. This was foreordained. This is the Father's will, the unchangeable decree from before the earth was formed. That all of the living of Jesus' life, his human life, it's especially for, and it reaches its climax, its apex, if you will, in the giving of his life. And by the death of Jesus, by his death, those who follow him, though they die, they also will resurrect. Right? Death can't hold those in Christ. It couldn't hold Jesus. It had no claim on him. So if you're in Jesus, it has no claim on you. I say that at every funeral I preach at. That's the joy of our death. This is not our home. We're pilgrims through this world. This happens not because the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is an example for martyrs to follow, but instead it happens as a once-for-all, once-for-all-time substitute for his followers so that the Father's wrath of judgment may be assuaged and so that the punishment for sin may be taken off of us It's being applied already, having been applied already to the Son of God, to God himself. God took our punishment for him. God took our punishment upon himself. I said that there were three things I wanted to highlight from these opening verses. The first was the, the going up to Jerusalem. Now here's the second. In verse 10 of our scripture reading, that doesn't make sense. It's not verse 10 of our scripture reading. But we know that Jesus uses the title that he prefers as a self-designation. He refers to himself as the Son of Man. Many years ago, I had a boss. He became my friend. For years, I had this boss and friend who happened to be a Mormon. Mormonism, that faith which foolishly lays claim to the false idea that Jesus was created He told me that the title, Son of Man, meant that Jesus was declaring himself to be, or having to, uh, declaring himself to have been created. The son of a human being. That's a perfect example of a partial truth that is an entirely damning truth. Yes, we know Jesus was born of Mary, 100% human. And in his humanity, he ate, he slept, and there were things that he did not know. But he was also conceived by the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, despite having given up his glory, which he held with the Father for all of eternity past, 
He never gave up his divinity. He was always and always will be 100% God. And so the eternal Son of God entered our human race in history, in real time, and in real space. I I don't have this written in my notes here, but when we confess the Apostles' Creed, we tell that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, that's just one reason, just just one, there's others, but that's a reason why we say that, because we can point to an historical event that shows that Jesus in time and space was really a human being who existed, that this happened to. He's not a story that somebody made up. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was born uniquely without sin. He was 100% man and 100% God. That was in our responsive reading this morning, not worded like that. But that's what we responded to. That's what we read and confessed. When Peter confesses, you are the Christ, Jesus follows up by saying that the Son of Man must do this and that, implying a phrase that has vast significance. Vast significance. You can go back, you can do your own homework on this, but you can go back to Daniel chapter 7, and you'll see that this title, this phrase, Son of Man, is used there as a messianic title. Jesus only ever applied it to himself, and it was never, ever used of anyone else. It's a messianic title, a title for the Messiah, the one to come, the Christ. This title combined both transcendent majesty and vicarious suffering. In other words, it was a term that allowed a concise treasury, if you will, of deep truth about who Jesus was. It bore the weight of the immensity of what he came to do. And as such, it's an ideal term, an ideal title for Jesus to apply to himself. By the way, my Mormon friend has since died. I have no reason to believe that he ever changed his allegiance from that cult of Mormonism to that of faith in Jesus and reliance on Jesus as the eternal, historically and futuristically eternal, second person of the Trinity. The third highlight from the opening text, we're still on verse 33, if you're tracking with me here in your Bibles. They're they're going up to where the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and they will deliver him over to the Gentiles. Now, some of your translations, all right, here we go, translations. Some of your translations might use the word betrayed instead of delivered up or handed over. The Greek can be understood to be either of those or any of those. Now, here's why. Let me give you some insight on how you will want to understand these verbs, the verbs of delivered and betrayed. The way, the way in which Jesus was delivered up by Judas was by betrayal. But he was delivered up. And we have before us, we have a progression of events. We have Jesus delivered by Judas into the power of the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin, that's the the judicial and the administrative body comprised of the high priestly family leaders and the scribes who were considered religious experts. That's the Sanhedrin. We then have the Sanhedrin delivering Jesus into the, the power of Pontius Pilate. 
like that Roman governor of sorts. He was a Gentile who served as the local Roman governor over the province of Judea. We then have Pilate, Pontius Pilate, delivering Jesus into the power of the soldiers. Now, why am I so concerned with this verb, deliver versus betray? Because it's this very verb that Paul uses, the Apostle Paul uses in writing his theology in Romans. Paul explains what's been happening to God, I'm sorry, what's been happening in God's giving of the Lord Jesus Christ. You'll remember from Romans 8.32, and I'm quoting here, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Or earlier in the same book, Romans 4.25 this time, he was delivered over to death for our sins. Right? That's the same Greek word, paradidomi, which is more for me to worry about than for you. Paradidomi. But you should understand that while it's true to say that Jesus was delivered into the hands of the Sanhedrin by Judas, and that he was delivered by them into the hands of Pilate, and that he was delivered by Pilate into the hands of the soldiers, right? But what's more so fundamentally true is that behind all this delivering, by way of human will and human action, is the delivering of Jesus by God the Father. Ultimately, it's God the Father that delivers Jesus up. This is such a mystery, isn't it? I mean, it's such a mystery. We could spend so many Bible studies on this one. It doesn't confound, if you will. It doesn't, there's no conflict in the reality of what each of the human characters is doing here. It doesn't intrude upon the freedom of the exercise of their sinful free will. But it makes clear that in the exercise of their will, that they were fulfilling the purpose of God, the Father, from all eternity past, to deliver up his Son as an atoning sacrifice for sin. I'm I'm hyper-intrigued by this truth, by the way. I, I hope that this grandeur, a little bit of the grandeur, somehow grips you as well. It finally, finally finally gripped Peter when he's preaching on the day of Pentecost. That light bulb came on, the penny dropped, if you will. Peter gets it now. The disciples get it. Now they're beginning to preach rightly. And this is what he says in Acts 2, 22. Peter says, men of Israel, listen to this. This is authoritative, by the way. Listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man attested to you by God and to you by many miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. All right, in other words, Peter's saying, guys, uh, I'm not telling you anything you didn't already know. You saw this. You were around. You witnessed what he did. And then Peter continues in that same chapter of Acts 2, verse 23. He says, this man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. This man was delivered up according to the eternal plan and purpose of God. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. You are responsible for his death. 
But God purposed his death. Okay, that's a wow. I hope you're thinking wow. So what is it? Who's responsible? Well, Isaiah 53 tells us who's responsible. Verse 10. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. How? How did the will of the Lord get accomplished? Through the exercise of the human will. All of the human jealousy, all of the human hatred, all of the spite, it was very real. And in the exercise of that, the very purpose of God gets fulfilled. Because he was delivered up by the plan of God from all eternity. This is but one example of God mysteriously working his decrees through the free will of mankind. You've heard this pithy sort of phrase or saying before that man waters the flower and he tends the garden, but it's God's will whether or not that flower blooms or whether it withers. Right? Every molecule, every atom on this earth, in this universe, is under his control, under his sovereignty. Nothing's rogue outside of his control. Now, you would think that the reality of this, that the response of the disciples would be to, to fall on their faces, to put their faces directly in the dirt, and whatever they've managed to grasp out of all of this world would melt their hearts and in them produce a humiliation, an adoration. We don't find that in the text. The actual opposite is true. The pole, the pendulum, swings all the way to the other, other side, the other pole. We now move on from Jesus explaining what's going to happen to him. We move on to the disciples' concern of what Jesus might do for them. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. That's, that's an amazing, pretty wide-open directive. I looked at this all different kinds of ways. Are they really asking this or telling Jesus this? It's like, hey, professor, I want you to do whatever I ask you to do. You don't say that to the teacher. Maybe you do, I don't know, but you certainly don't say it to God. What's more, these two Jewish boys, they're being led into this situation by their mother. Her name, by the way, is Salome. She must, she must think that she's a pretty wise one. I can imagine that she pulls her children aside, her, her men, children, Listen, boys, you have to get ahead of the rest of those other disciples. The early bird gets the worm, you know. Jesus will appreciate your initiative. Let's go to him together. I'll show you how it's done. Watch me. In Matthew's version of this event, it's recorded in chapter 20 of Matthew. She's the one making the petition. There's no conflict, by the way, between Matthew and Mark. You can reconcile them very easily, but she's the one on her knees making this petition to Jesus. Now in Mark chapter 10, verse 36, and he, this Jesus, he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one on your left, in your glory. Salome, mom, she must have been beaming with pride and anticipation. Jesus is so calm, though. He's so patient in his response. 
As typical, this is typical, he, he responds to them, he teaches them by asking them a question that's purposed to cause them to think about what it is they're, they're, they're asking or what's going on. He answers questions with questions. It's actually a rhetorical question, for the answer is obviously a resounding no. But they are so immature, they're so full of themselves. Verse 38, Jesus says to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What they actually say? They say, yeah, yeah, we can. They actually say, yes, we can. Yes, Jesus, we can drink the entire cup of God's wrath upon mankind. To its last drop, we can die for the sin of the world and expend ourselves entirely for the good of others. No problem. Clearly, they don't understand what it is they're saying yes to. But Jesus does inform them of something to come. They still don't get this part, but he tells them that they will suffer for the gospel. Not as plainly as that, but they will understand it later. I say that because it's recorded for us. The same John, who's here in Mark, that same John much, much later in his years, for he didn't write any scripture until he was an older man. The same John wrote in his letter, which we call 1 John. I think it's uh, chapter 3, verse 16. You can check me on that. But as an elderly gent, John wrote, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. And that's the same man. That's the same John who said, Jesus, I was just wondering about my seat, you know, in glory. You'll be on a throne one day, the eternal throne of your forefather David, right? That, that throne which is forever. And I just want to have the most prominent spot next to it. Is that okay? Worldly ideas of status and a privilege, they have no place in the kingdom of God. But laying down our lives to serve the purposes of the king do. They have everything to do with the purposes of God on this earth. And what we discover in this passage is that the measure of an individual's greatness is not in the number of servants. It's not in their status, whether they're moderator or president or elder or whatever. It's the extent instead to which the individual is prepared to live in the service of others. Jesus turns greatness on his head. His language is radical. Verse 44, and whoever would be first among you must be a slave to all. By the way, again, not my notes. It might be easy to be a slave to your spouse or your grandchildren or your boss or the president, your governor. But what about the people you don't like? What about the people who you have no inherent submission to? Jesus says you must be slave to all. That's hard to swallow. You want to have a position of of significance, says Jesus? Let me tell you how to do it. Follow me. Oh, by the way, where's he going? Up to Jerusalem to suffer, to be scourged, to die. Follow me, he says. Identify with me. I'm I'm serving others. 
I'm about to die for them. How about you just die to yourself? How about you lay aside your sin? Put it away. By the way, the persons of the Godhead, right? One God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The three persons of the Godhead are not distinguished by what we call divine attributes, for they share the same attributes. Instead, they are defined or distinguished by their relationship with and to one another. We confess that the Father is unbegotten and that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. We confess that the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from both the Father and the Son. Okay, so they have different roles, such as the Father sending the Son, the Son procuring or purchasing salvation in obedience of the Father, and the Holy, the Holy Spirit preserving that salvation, which is why you can never lose your salvation once it's been granted to you. Amen. It's not up to you. The Holy Spirit preserves you unto glory. I want to come back to that another week, but for now it's enough to say that the Father is the one who assigns or grants status in the throne room of heaven's kingdom. How do I know that? Jesus says so. It's right before you. Verse 40. Unless you think that this opportunism, and that's what it is, of John and James, these sons of Salome, right, these Zebedee family boys, let's not miss the other ten disciples of whom we're told that they were indignant about this power grab. They rallied together, essentially saying, now wait a minute, hold on, James and John, who are you to jump in front of us? Who are you to pull this opportunistic power grab? We want the position for ourselves, or at least we want to be considered for it. getting near the time to depart. So I'm going to close with Jesus' main point for the Christian in this morning's passage. We've said this so many times from this pulpit alone that I very much hope and expect that you understand this by now, this hugely important point, which is that our status in this world means nothing. It gains us nothing in terms of pleasing God or entering heaven's gates. So when we commit, right, when we commit to following Jesus, we commit to giving ourselves over to his lordship. We're not just saved from our sins, we're saved unto him as our Lord. We commit to serving others as he served them. We commit to not Sorry about that, lost my place. We commit to serving others as he served them, which is, by the way, selflessly, tirelessly, generously, and in the name of God. We consider others more important than ourselves. We commit not to selling our possessions, not to selling our possessions and giving it all to the poor, not to throwing out every secular book in your library or giving up every secular hobby or interest. Jesus has nothing against fishing. 
We don't commit to entering some kind of commune where everything is shared and nothing is owned. Socialism and communism is not part of God's calling. No. We commit to giving our entire hearts to Jesus and letting his spirit and his word sear our conscience and our mind so that everything that we think and everything that we do is by him and for him. Because in him is everything that we are, right? We have a new life in Christ. So let's not have any of this what I call liberal notion that Christianity is all about acceptance of others and of being nice. On the contrary, Christianity, as explained by Jesus throughout Genesis to the Revelation, it's a bloody business. It is a bloody business. It's filled with the drama of struggles against sin that wage war in our hearts. And ultimately, it requires the God of all creation to rescue us from the pit of hell and from the angel of death. Who wants nothing more than to stop you from being saved? He wants nothing more than to ruin your life because Jesus loves you and he hates Jesus. Is it any wonder that the gate is narrow and that the way is hard that leads to life? How many people find that? How many people go down that path? Few. Few. Let's pray. Just a moment, if you will, of silence to reflect on Jesus' words, where he's told us, he told the disciples, and he speaks to us this morning, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. God, as we come before you, we acknowledge that we're not what we once were, but we're also not quite what we're going to be either, what you ultimately want for us. We acknowledge that your work is ongoing to conform us into the image of your Son. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you've begun a good work in us, a saving work. We pray that you would strengthen us to trust in you and by your grace that we'd look to you for all things in this life and in the next. It's in the name, the precious name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. All right. Our final.